Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Bones, you ever hear of a doomsday machine? No, I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. It's a weapon built primarily as a bluff. It's never meant to be used. So strong it could destroy both sides of the war. Something like the old H-bomb was supposed to be. That's what I think this is. Doomsday machine that somebody used in a war uncounted years ago. They don't exist anymore, but the machine is still destroying. Time for the Lovecraft Geek, and uh, that's me, not-so-great Cthulhu, otherwise known as Robert M. Price. It's exciting. Tomorrow morning, Victoria and I are headed up to Rhode Island for uh, the Necronomicon with a capital C. Oh, boy, is it going to be fun. I've been writing the stuff I'm going to say and all that. Uh, oh, boy, it's going to be great. A um, couple of little notes. Uh, the other night I had this dream that I was on the phone all night with El Sprague de Camp. I can't remember what the heck we were talking about. I sort of think it was history of religion stuff. But uh, um, I corresponded with him, but only ever met him at a couple of the early Necronomicons, and I guess he was sort of tapping me on the shoulder from the spirit realm. Uh, or, you know, like Robert E. Howard's ghost uh, in talking to him in one of his stories. Uh, let's see. Um, also, I've been dipping into... Uh, uh, some some of these Dark Horse Archive editions of Forbidden Worlds from American Comics Group. Uh, this is uh, these specific art books uh, edited by Roy Thomas. Uh, they've put out a whole mess of those, and uh, also Adventures into the Unknown and stuff like that. And uh, apparently, like uh, all the stories in Forbidden Worlds are written by a single guy because they all use. Uh, certain vocabulary in common, like the exclamation, ye gods, and uh, calling the bad guys creeps, and uh, some other stuff. But also the uh, interesting, weird plot uh, lines. None of these things are really frightening. They're, they're all tepid, and this is so-called pre-code horror stuff, but I have to admit, they're, they're pretty uh, unusual uh, and, and uh, kind of interesting. You know, that's often damn with faint praise, and I wouldn't deny that's true, but eh, there is something to it. Uh, it's not just, uh, you know, mealy mouth nothing, though, uh, you know, I'd hate to see what these guys published after the comics code uh, came out and ruined the whole shebang. Um, like, you know, Vault of Horror becomes uh, Vault of Boredom, uh, Tales from the Crypt becomes... Uh, Tales from the the crib, um, stuff like that. It's uh, or journey into mediocrity, uh, stale tales, and all these things. But uh, what the heck? I got to admit, I have a better conscience getting those Atlas volumes from Marvel because you got Steve Ditko, Don Heck, 
Jack Kirby and all that, but uh, anyway, uh, let's get to some slime bucket questions. Uh, Jason Bufkin in Mankato, Minnesota, just gives us a tip here. Uh, for fans of uh, At the Mountains of Madness, don't you know, uh, Blackstone Audio does an audio book read by Edward Herman, oh, two ends, that is amazing. Uh, Herman does a fantastic job of making that purple prose a treat to listen to with a serious scholarly narration that perfectly contrasts the horrors William Dyer is relating. Uh, thanks, Jason. I uh, don't know who that is, but I uh, wonder if uh, we got the good luck uh, that he might be the man who did all those recordings for the blind audio versions of Lovecraft. Uh, Steve Maraconda gave me some copies of that many years ago. They are fantastic, uh, and I'm glad to hear uh, that there's, there's more uh, goodies out there. You may know years ago, Mark Michaud had me do a reading of the Dunwich Horror, which I, I don't know if it's still in, still available. It was an audio cassette. Um, Jared Wallace and I keep uh, promising each other to uh, do a new recording on CD, but you know, who knows how. It's been strange eons already. Who knows if it'll ever happen. Anyway, uh, let's see. Uh, Dominic says, uh, let's see, a listener suggested having a Star Trek Cthulhu mythos crossover, but I think it already happened in the episode The Doomsday Machine. The Doomsday Machine is terrifying. It's simple to understand. I'm completely credible. Which is one of my favorite moments in the show's history. It gives me shivers remembering when good old Captain Kirk and that crazed Ahab-like captain do battle with that strange outer space horn of plenty. From what I recall, the story's moral lesson is about creating super weapons or weapons of mass destruction. Oh, forget about your theories! Such weapons should never be used, but from my new perspective in regards to the Cthulhu mythos, wouldn't it be great if that doomsday machine was created by the old ones? Um, doesn't that sound great? Maybe they could explore the idea that the Horn of Plenty wasn't really destroyed, but just disabled, and then came back to do battle again? What do you think? Or imagine a dozen of them. Yeah, I think that would be good. In fact, you could suggest that these things were the great old ones. Uh, that'd be pretty good. You know, uh, Babylon 5 got pretty nearly overtly Lovecraftian uh, toward the end. And, uh, and um, by the way, I, I do also love this episode, uh, especially for William Wyndham's portrayal of Commodore Decker. I, I love Wyndham, whatever he's in. But his acting, when they first find him alone on the, what's left of his starship, and he says, They say there's no devil, Jim. They say there's no devil, Jim. But there is. But there is. Right a, out of hell. Right out of hell. I saw it. Oh, man, he's great. Uh, he is so great. Um, my uh, pal Mark Saracini, many years ago, uh, tried to sell a, a novel to whoever it was, what publisher, was doing all these Star Trek novels, 
where uh, it was explicitly a mythos connection and the hero would have been Kang the Klingon captain and as some sort of a last ditch defensive weapon he tried to call up the old ones because Klingon lore knew about him but uh, I'm pretty sure Mark never wrote it I hope maybe he still will he stays pretty busy though um, this is from Lester. I've always loved that name. I guess going back to an Archie Comics um, series. I forget what the heck it was called, but they had Lester Cool and Chester Square. Somehow it vaguely reminds me of the Hawk and the Dove from DC. But anyway, uh, Lester says, Does the Necronomicon remind you of Islamic scholarly works like Al-Nadim's Fihrist. I've never known how to pronounce that. I'm thinking of Al-Nadim's discussion of the Sabians or the Manichaeans. I discovered Lovecraft my senior year in high school, 1971. Uh, you're one year older than me. I also discovered Clark Ashton Smith that year, Faulkner and Tolkien. Gee, I know all of those guys, but who's this Faulkner? Just kidding. I, uh, I'm a fellow Mississippian, but I've never read a word of his. I- I'm happy to admit my ignorance. Uh, yeah, it is a lot like that, especially in that the Necronomicon was uh, sometimes understood to be a kind of uh, catalog of heresies and of arcane notions, like uh, the way it appears first in the festival, uh, that, you know, happy is a town that burns all their wizards and all that, because here's what happens if you don't, and... Uh, things like that. Of course, sometimes it's instead a kind of an occult Bible or a magic book. It changes, even within the festival, it changes nature. It's uh, warning the narrator about these human slugs he's about to uh, to meet. Um, but uh, they use it as a Bible. So, you know, there's no consistent uh, conception of it. But some of the time, yeah. And uh, as Marco Frenchkowski has pointed out, a German uh, Lovecraft and New Testament scholar um, of of great uh, ability, as he's pointed out, that the uh, the insofar as the Necronomicon is based on uh, what's uh, old what's his name's marvels of science. Can't think of it from Ambrose Bierce. Old so-and-so's marvels of science he's he's got these couple of quotes it is uh, attested from of old that so-and-so lovecraft sometimes borrows that and i'm sure i'm gonna think of that guy's name as soon as this is over uh but um insofar as the necronomicon partakes of that it's really like these uh, various arabic magic books some of which you can find discussed in uh, um, Idris Shah's book, uh, Oriental Magic, uh, and uh, probably in the more recent book, Grimoires. I can't think of the author. And I think that I think the Beers thing was Mar- old Morrister's Marvels of Science. And uh, yeah, it, it, Marco Frenchkowski shows that yes, th- this is much the same thing. Uh, the Necronomicon, the Al-Azif is pretty much like some real uh, Arabic magic books. Okay, who's next to quote? 
Alma Mobley. Um, uh, this is Verge. It says, You and others have pointed out that Lovecraft, like many creative people, reused themes throughout his stories, such as Dagon's expansion into the Call of Cthulhu and the dry run for At the Mountains of Madness that is The Nameless City. If you squint, you can see a rewrite of the statement of Randolph Carter in Herbert West Reanimator. That suggests a question. Is Pickman's model a sort of third-person spiritual successor to The Outsider? Uh, In The Outsider, the protagonist tells his own story of self-discovery as a monster who is shunned by polite human society, but who then finds solace in a community of like-minded children of the night. In Pickman's model, the narrator relates the development and eventual cessation of his relationship to a strange man he later realizes is a monster uh, and who runs away from the waking world to join his own kind. The chief difference between these characters is that the titular outsider seems to be an ambulating corpse while Pickman is of course a ghoul. Uh, Let's see, let me just stop and point out, uh, Will Murray did a very fascinating article in Crypt of Cthulhu many years ago called, Was the Outsider a Ghoul? Uh, and uh, and one of the things he points out is that uh, he's lived for a long, long time underneath the ground. Now, that, that could be an unexplainedly reanimated corpse, but um, where does he wind up? He's among the laughing ghouls in the rock tombs of Neb in Egypt, and, uh, you know, maybe he is. (coughs) Just choking on some cemetery dust there. Uh, And uh, so, yeah, I mean, he's thought that way, too, and so maybe the two are even closer than you're suggesting, but anyway... Back to Verge. Furthermore, the geography of the outsider always confused me. Everything until the very end of the story seems to take place in a boreal forest, as HPL would put it. But in the final paragraphs, the narrator speaks of his new life in and around the rock tombs of Neb and seasonal festivities in the feasts of Nitocris, both of which sound rather Egyptian. How a temperate zone and a sandy desert can be conveniently close to each other is not so much as hinted at. So is it possible that the outsider ended up as a resident of another plane of existence with unusual geography, like the Dreamlands? Hmm. That would be the outsider and pick... That would tie the outsider and Pickman's model more closely together. This interpretation is even more interesting if one... Uh, bears your homosexual panic in the outsider article in mind, by the way. So what do you think? Can we honestly say that Lovecraft had the outsider in mind when writing Pickman's model? I guess that has to remain a toss-up, though uh, you point out some valid parallels, uh, certainly at least as much as exist between Dagon and the Call of Cthulhu section called The Ma- the Madness from the Sea. Uh, that's well worth considering, uh, Verge. I think you might have something there. 
By the way, I always took the ending to mean that he had left good old New England or Europe or wherever he was and wound up uh, in Egypt having traveled there. Uh, but it doesn't really say that. Uh, and uh, you could be right. Uh, it's a very interesting possibility. Mm, let's see this from... Oh, let me find the name at the end of it. Uh, Alan S. And uh, he saith, uh, This missive comes to you from a guy born in the United Kingdom of predominantly Roman ancestry who now lives in Brisbane, Australia. I really hope you read this one out on the cast as it would be intriguing to hear you attempt the accent. Anyway, a couple of possible talking points for the old slime bucket. One, dream quest of unknown Kadeth. This is my favorite of all of HPL's works, and I recall that when I first read it, it totally knocked my 14-year-old psyche for a loop. Uh, Yet today, even some Cthulhu fanatics never seem to have heard of it. Do you think that part of the reason for its neglect is that he never managed to get beyond the first draft? Do you think that part... Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, yeah. I'd have loved to see him finish it, maybe drawing out the climax a little more, giving us more about the culture and history of the ghouls, and perhaps finding less unintentionally funny names for the gugs, zooks, and gas... Zoogs and ghasts. Your thoughts? I guess he could have uh, tinkered with it a bit, but it reads to me like a finished work. I mean, you're right, it was a draft, but I don't know if it would have been much different. Uh, and uh, I, I think there's a kind of Wizard of Oz sensibility, as Brian Lumley has pointed out, where these these names do uh, aim at the fancifulness. They're supposed to be monsters, but I think there's a an intentional sort of silliness or whimsical character to them. Uh, uh, two, personally, I think that HPL's Dunsinian fantasies are some of the most beautifully written in the English language. Uh, the Randolph Carter cycle, particularly Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, truly broke as much new ground in the fantasy genre as the Cthulhu stories did in the cosmic horror genre. One might even argue that the unofficial Dream Trilogy that is added in the Silver Key and through the gates of the Silver Key were the first cyberpunk novels in that they feature a person separated from his body and facing genuine peril in a virtual world. Do you agree or disagree? Well, uh, it was uh, a fruitful, there's the thought police coming after me. Uh, um, I, I think it, it was very productive in, in uh, sort of fostering the interest in Dunsany's works, perhaps in a new readership. And uh, people like Henry Kuttner and Gary Myers and Lynn Carter have done good uh, Dunsanian, Lovecraftian uh, pastiches. And so, yeah, it, it d- didn't seem to... Well, uh, yeah, Brian Lumley, too. Um, but uh, it didn't seem to attract the huge following and didn't seem to inspire quite the same massive surge of creative emulation as the mythos stories did. But if you mean 
would these qualify as cyberpunk? I cannot answer you. I don't know enough about that genre. The comparison of the dream world to a virtual world, though, I guess that might be enough to do the trick, though. Don't you need more technology for that, for cyberpunk? But again, it's Mr. Ignorance here wearing his uh, patented Stuponatron helmet. I got it from a cat. Oh, let's see. I do realize that other works like George MacDonald's Lilith, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, or even Dante's Divine Comedy predate HPL's story. But these are all deliberate religious analogies, whereas this, or allegories, I guess, whereas this description could not be applied to Dream Quest, which presented the imagery, I'm sorry, the imaginary world simply for its own sake. Yeah, it's pretty true. Though some of Dunsany's stories were allegories of unbelief uh, that were really like atheist scripture. Now, three. Uh, then there are all those amazing early tales, such as the doom that came to Sarnath or the white ship, where Yog Sothoth or Nihalathotep don't get a mention, yet they're certainly deserving a classic status. And remember, not everything HPL wrote was actually weird or dependent on the supernatural. In the Wall of Eric's, did he actually write this or just rewrite it? Um, I should think he wrote most of it based on some sort of an outline or draft by Kenneth Sterling. Uh it's a work of straight sci-fi, and the picture in the house and in the vault are totally devoid of anything occult, but can be regarded as straight-out horror. And in fact, you could say that the picture in the house is an early uh, representative of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre genre. Somebody takes a wrong turn, and look what happens. Um, well, let's see... Uh, uh, would you like to see these stories gain more prominence, or do you feel they were more or less juvenilia, pot boilers, and could only drag HPL's posthumous reputation down? No, I, I think uh, stuff like uh, the... I don't think much of the walls of in the walls of Eric's, to tell you the truth. Um, uh, the Doom that came to Sarnath is real good, the White Ship is real good, but a different sort of a fantasy than I really grok. Um, but I've always found the picture in the house and in the vault to be chilling. I think they're terrific, and uh, they enhance Lovecraft's reputation. I kind of advise people just getting into Lovecraft that they might want to read that stuff first, uh, so that it will not, by comparison with the later major works, seem anticlimactic, because they shouldn't seem that way. They have a power all their own. For. And finally, a kind of weird question if you don't think I've already rambled on too long. Just after my first reading of Dream Quest, the friend who introduced me to HPL's work and was a very skilled artist showed me his illustration of the story. It featured Randolph Carter balancing precariously on a rock ledge with the night gaunts flocking in the background. He portrayed Carter in a nightshirt and nightcap of the type Lovecraft probably wore in fact did, according to Sprague de Camp's biography. When I read it, uh, 
When I read this story, I sort of assumed the humanoid inhabitants of the dream world wore medieval or ancient style clothing, I'd say so, and that Carter's dream form would have been able to clothe himself in an outfit that would have blended in. If some cosmic law demanded that dreamers who travel in the dream world have to mirror what their waking body is wearing, and given that Carter planned to go on the quest, would he not have deliberately dressed his physical body and appropriate clothing before going to sleep, just sort of like the Enterprise uh, spies dressing up in the uh, period costume of the planets are going down on. Uh, seeing a guy wandering about in a nightshirt wouldn't have done much for his ability to travel incognito, as many parts of the quest demanded. Lovecraft's text is unfortunately silent on the point. Yeah, I do like that idea that he's he's in the nightshirt and nightcap since this is happening in a dream. I never thought of that. I, I like that a lot. But my guess is he probably did just vaguely fit in, and we uh, either that or we have to assume that he just borrowed or stole some clothes somewhere along the line. Um, but, uh, you know, probably readers don't care that much about that and would let Lovecraft get away with uh, you know, poetic skimping. Uh, let's see. Uh, this from Bill Adcock. Kaor, fellow devotee of Lovecraft, Howard Smith, and Burroughs, you bet. In addition to the much-noted similarities between Wilbur Waitley and Jesus Christ, I can't help but see a lot of Lovecraft's own childhood in Wilbur's. Absent father, raised by his grandfather and a mother with mental health issues, educated from his grandfather's library, all points that could apply equally to the old gent from Providence and the black brat of Dunwich. I have to believe that Lovecraft was doing this consciously. Did he ever comment on the similarities between himself and Wilbur and any of his correspondence? I don't think he did, but I am sure you're right. And and various commentators, uh, S.T. Joshi and others, have pointed it out. I mean, also uh, uh, Jervis uh, Dudley, I think is his name, in... Um, whoa, what the heck... Uh, Oh, good God, don't tell me. Uh, it's not in the vault, obviously. It's the tomb, I guess it is, right? Uh, he's obviously based on Lovecraft as well. I, I think you're exactly right on that, though I don't think he ever mentions the, the fact in a letter. If anybody knows otherwise, please uh, correct me. I'd, I'd love to be rightly informed. Uh, yours in both slithering slime and flashing swords. Uh, amen, Bill. Hmm, see. Justin Brown, I think I got that right. I can't get a straight answer on the copyright status of Lovecraft's work. Which parts are public domain? I know this varies by country, so what's the status in the U.S.? What does Chaosium actually own? I remember this first became an issue when I discovered Lovecraft and tried to look up his books on Project Gutenberg, a site for public domain books. The U.S. site had a limited selection, but I found the AU site had his complete works. It seems strange to differentiate, since both sites are equally easy to access. Well, I uh, have heard from S.T., who knows these things better than anybody else, 
that uh, though all of it is in public domain, a domain, um, uh, somebody thinks that Robert Harrell, an attorney who is the last known tenuous relative of Lovecraft, uh, is, is the one who grants permission. I don't know if if you have to get his permission, and I'm pretty sure some have circumvented him, but he doesn't charge for it, as far as I know. And uh, I, I think it's more of just a, a polite nod. Uh, once I wrote to Forey Ackerman about um, a couple of obscure, weird tales writers that I understood he was the literary executor for, uh, agent for the estate or whatever, and he said, well, it's they're probably in public domain, but it's nice of you to uh, you know, to, to ask. Uh, so I, I, I don't know. I, I think uh, that there's no serious risk involved in uh, printing those stories. But August Erleth made such a big deal uh, that uh, Arkham House owned it all, uh, and utterly without grounds, as it turned out uh, later, uh, that uh, people are still sort of intimidated, uh, sort of post-Derleth uh, trauma syndrome. But I think that's the, the state of things. Uh, you might want to... Uh, Ask uh, Robert Harrell's okay, but uh, I don't know that there's uh, that there's a legal obligation. Again, St. If you're somehow listening to this, uh, feel free to correct us if I am wrong. Um, <laughs> Sid, as an artist by trade, I find myself listening to a ton of audio books while I do art. I recently obtained two audiobooks of Lovecraftian compilations, one being stories from the Dream Cycle and one stories from the Cthulhu Mythos. I was surprised to find From Beyond in the compilation of Dream Cycle stories where I had previously assumed it fit in with the Cthulhu Mythos. I always assumed the Mythos stories focused on the horrors of scientific knowledge and the insignificance of mankind, and From Beyond certainly falls into that category. Uh, my question is, what do you think is the key factor that determines a Cthulhu Mythos story or distinguishes it from a dream cycle story. I assume, of course, that there's some gray area in some of Lovecraft's earlier work where he's still refining his style, like the shunned house and the outsider. Well, that is a notoriously uh, tough question, but I will say I think you're right about um, From Beyond being more of a implicitly mythos story, I should say in exactly the same way the color out of space is. You don't have explicit references to these outer elder entities uh, that seek to return to the world they once ruled and take it away from us necktied lemurs. Um, and that's the big problem. You, but but you do have something very close, the, uh, the these unseen inhabitants of another adjacent dimension that are floating around us all the time, and if we could inhabit the same dimension, we would be in huge trouble. That's what makes Stephen King's *The Mist* one of the great Lovecraftian uh, novellas. Um. 
and so uh, and in fact it's not all that different from what we read in the dunwich horror uh, and uh, except that in from beyond there's no suggestion that these things lurk waiting to grab the whole planet and pull it into another dimension but it is pretty darn close otherwise just like in the color out of space we do have a inconceivable entity from out there uh, and it does create problems for the inhabitants of this world simply by being in this world where it doesn't belong but again there's no takeover business i mean there's a kind of an analog to it in that the influence is creeping but it's it's more like a kind of a dangerous natural phenomenon a contagion or something but that's what i'm saying as you are saying these uh, mythos stories dunsanian stories uh, traditional spook stories, their ideal types and uh, their usefulness is that their coordinates among which and between which we can plot the stories. This, like I've just said, uh, from beyond and the color out of space should be understood as pretty close to an out-and-out mythos story, like the Call of Cthulhu, the Dunwich Har, the Honor of the Dark, etc., uh, but it's not like a box. You have to decide which things to stuff into. That's not what an ideal type is. Um, uh, for instance, uh, similarly with the rats in the walls, I guess that is a mythos story, but again, it doesn't have this invasion idea. And it has to do with a tainted heritage. It's sort of a gothic thing. And even though it mentions Nyarlathotep, doesn't seem to picture him in the way that uh, it even says there's faceless chaos and all that, but that seems to be a minor point, so it may be mythos by the skin of its teeth, but it's right on the outer edge of it, I should say. Same thing with the uh, the uh, Dreamland stories in The Other Gods. Uh, what is this about the mild gods of Earth who are scared of the uh, these outer gods, these other gods that one dare not uh, traffic with? That seems kind of mythosian, but still, it's uh, you know it's so much more like these dream fables of, of Dunsany. Uh, so um, I guess this notion of outer ancient entities seeking to uh, take over the world as we know it and uh, the the overt monstrousness of these aliens you, you kind of need that I don't think Miskatonic University or even the Necronomicon would be enough to uh, to make something a mythos story but again their ideal types their coordinates on the chart uh, not not comprehensive crates to stuff the tomatoes of a particular size into. Um, Cutsworth says, I'm an enthusiast of tentacles and monsters, so I uh, read and reread all of Lovecraft's stories a lot. In the story Through the Gates of the Silver Key, Randolph Carter seems to me to be the most important character in all of the Lovecraft mythos. So, my question is, do you know why he chose the name Randolph Carter? Was it a popular name when H.P. was alive? Um, 
I have a hunch there's more to it than I know, but I sure wouldn't be surprised if Randolph Carter's name was suggested by Edgar Rice Burroughs' John Carter of Mars, because uh, nobody can tell me that the dream quest of Unknown Kadath, though it is not the first Randolph Carter story, does not owe a big debt to uh, Burroughs's uh, Martian stories. Pickman the Ghoul is kind of his version of Tars Tarkas, and uh, Randolph Carter sort of becomes the warlord of uh, the dream world, and uh, I, the, the picaresque novel with weird stuff going on. I just said a moment ago you can suspect some Oz influence, especially at the end where um, Randolph Carter is told that uh, the Sunset City you're in search of, you know, it's already in your own backyard, so just click your ruby slippers together, Randy, and you'll be home. Um, but I I have a hunch it's Burroughs' influence. But he did pick names. I mean, it, it can't be that rare a name, and he's, we're, we know he used other local names he ran across in his travels that, that he liked uh, for character names. Yeah, so it wouldn't have sounded odd to anybody. Um, uh, like it's not like he's got the dream quest of Mortimer Snurd or something. Well, that's it for uh, the slime bucket, and therefore for the Lovecraft geek on this eve of the Necronomicon. That thing is on the way to the heart of our galaxy. What are you going to do about Take it? Take it easy. Uh, hope to see you there, and uh, send in some more questions, and then I'll see you whenever you do uh, on The Lovecraft Geek. The Lovecraft Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price and produced by John Felix. Catch up with Mike Davis and Mythos Communities Everywhere by devouring the free online Lovecraft e-zine at lovecraftzine.com for events, news, and information. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to The Lovecraft Geek on iTunes. To catch up with Dr. Price's projects, purchase merchandise, and donate to help support Dr. Price and his family, please visit robertmprice.mindvendor.com. Thanks for listening to The Lovecraft Geek. I'm Torin Atkinson. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.